service. Hey, I'm Jake Brennan, and I want to tell you about Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I host. Disgraceland tells the stories of musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Fleetwood Mac, Nipsey Hussle, Cardi B, Ozzy Osbourne, Taylor Swift, Tupac, The Beatles, Amy Winehouse, Jay-Z, The Grateful Dead, and so many more. This is not the music history you've heard before. This is an uncensored, immersive look at the lives of musical icons as seen through the crimes they've committed or that have been perpetrated against them. Did Jerry Lee Lewis murder his fifth wife? What really happened to Sam Cooke in that seedy motel at 3 a.m.? And how did the Rolling Stones wind up sleeping with the First Lady? Wait, what? New episodes of Disgraceland drop every Tuesday with bonus episodes released on Mondays and Thursdays. So get in, buckle up, and join me in Disgraceland. Available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. Rockerola. This episode contains content that may be disturbing to some listeners. Please check the show notes for more information. Badlands is a production of Double Elvis. The stories about Sharon Stone are insane. She was nominated for awards for Best Actress and Worst Actress for the same role. She launched a million sexual awakenings with one quick display in Basic Instinct. Her performance in that film was so vivid that it inspired stalkers to track her down. It may have even served as the inspiration for one fan to commit murder, cannibalism, and necrophilia. While investigators were busy chasing a killer from one continent to another, Sharon Stone tried to outrun the legacy of the film that the killer loved. One of her many great films. Unlike that clip I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't from a great film. That was a fair use sample from the Library of Congress of Matilda Cadu performing Butcher's Boy in 1938. I played you that clip because I can't afford the rights to a clip from Josh Whedon's The Adventures. And why would I play you that specific slice of wormhole in Manhattan cheese? Could I afford it? Because that was the number one movie in America on May 24th, 2012. And that was the day that a gruesome murder partially inspired by the movie Basic Instinct led to an international manhunt and a string of grisly discoveries throughout Canada. On this episode, best and worst actresses, sexual awakenings, murder, cannibalism, necrophilia, wormhole in Manhattan cheese, and Sharon Stone. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands.
Jenny Brine was laying into the mailroom assistant at the Canadian Conservative Party headquarters in Ottawa. The new hire was a nephew or a cousin of some high-ranking party official. She wasn't exactly sure. She didn't care. Whoever this kid was related to, he was falling down on the job. Packages to the wrong office, letters misplaced, and that damn mail cart banging into the walls, squeaking down the hallways, and in general, making a huge racket every afternoon. It was driving her crazy, and it brought the entire office to a standstill every time he came through. The new kid just stared at his shoes as Jenny continued. Did he know where he was right now? He was working at the very seat of political power in Canada. Jenny herself led the charge last year in the 2011 election, when her conservative party took the majority for the first time in decades. Now, some newspapers were calling her the most powerful woman in Canadian politics. The way that Jenny made it to the top was by making sure that every single detail was done right. That's why she was taking the new mailroom assistant to task right now. From this mail clerk all the way up to Jenny's boss, Prime Minister Stephen Harper, everyone had their job to do. And if you couldn't do it right, then you needed to find something else to do. She didn't want to browbeat this poor 22-year-old. She wasn't trying to shame anyone. But she wasn't going to mince words either. It was real simple. Shape up or ship out. Do we understand each other, she asked. He nodded yes, but kept staring at his shoes. You can go now, she said, waving him out the door. He reached for the mail cart, but she told him to leave it. She couldn't take any more banging down the hallway this afternoon. Jenny pushed the cart to the corner of her office and shut the door and took a deep breath. Damn, what was that smell? She added personal hygiene to the list of things to talk to this guy about next, if she didn't fire him first. Jenny glanced at her inbox. 152 unread messages. The work never stopped. But still, she was here at the height of power in Canadian politics. Just last week, she'd been grinding side by side with the Prime Minister as they plotted legislative strategy for the upcoming session. Not too bad for a small town Ontario girl at all, she thought as she smiled to herself. And while Jenny spent the last week plotting legislative strategy, just over 100 miles away in Montreal, someone else was busy plotting as well. Luca Minata gave his trademark pout into the rearview mirror. Damn, he looked good. His close-cropped blonde hair had that perfectly messy bedhead look, and his eyes were brooding and sexy. No wonder he had been the subject of thousands of blog posts and message board comments around the world. So what if he posted them himself? When it came to fame, Luca knew you sometimes had to fake it till you made it. Luca had tried his luck as a model and an actor in New York City, but struck out. He tried out for Canadian reality shows with names like Cover Guy and Plastic Makes Perfect, but he wasn't selected. He couldn't make it as a porn star either. Now he was back in Montreal, almost broke and at the end of his rope when he put his plan into action. Fame had eluded him. But infamy, that was another story altogether. He looked at his devastatingly handsome reflection in the mirror once more and turned his eyes to the road. He passed the Canada post office he had already visited twice today. 
Three times would be pushing his luck. So he drove on another dozen blocks to the next branch for his delivery. He arrived at the post office and carried two small boxes inside. The place was empty except for the mail clerk behind the counter. He walked toward her and put his packages up onto the counter. And the mail clerk picked them up and weighed them. They were light, less than a kilogram each. Anything fragile, liquid, or perishable in here? Her tone was one of boredom. Luca's face twisted into half a grin for a second before he caught himself. No, nothing in there like that. He watched her drop the boxes into a large mail cart, grabbed his receipt, and rushed out the door. Back in the car, he pulled out the receipts for his shipments. Two packages to Ottawa, scheduled to arrive May 29th, and two packages to Vancouver. Those would take longer, maybe as much as a week. He hoped they would make it to their destination, but he didn't have time to dwell on it. He needed to hurry now if he was going to make his flight. And by the time Luca made it back to the apartment, he only had an hour to clean the place and pack a bag and hail a cab for the airport. He was headed for Paris tonight. And when would he be back? That was hard to tell. The thought panicked him for a moment. To steady himself, he imagined he was Catherine Trammell in Basic Instinct. Would she panic right now? Would Sharon Stone, the actress who played Catherine? Hell no. She would flick her hair back, light a cigarette, and stay one step ahead of the cops. She would be cool, calm, and in control, and sexy as hell. So that's what he was going to be. An hour later, his bag was packed. His apartment was mostly clean, and he was hailing a cab to the airport. It would be days before anyone knew he was gone. Back in her office, Jenny Bryan tried to chip away at the unending pile of emails in her inbox. And that fucking smell still lingered, though. She couldn't concentrate. She stood up to open the office door, but as she walked forward, the stench only intensified. It was coming from that damn mail cart, the bane of her existence. What was it? An old flower arrangement? Fruit basket gone bad? The smell of rot was unmistakable now. She lifted out a few of the boxes and the smell got worse. Whatever it was made her stomach turn. She had to get out of here. She kept digging until she got to the bottom of the cart. She lifted out a small box. It was light and it weighed less than a kilogram. And the edge of the box was wet, soaked in a dark crimson liquid. Jenny held the box away from her and tore off the top flap. The smell was overpowering. This wasn't rotten fruit or flowers. It was something much worse. She screamed so loud that the entire office came to a halt. Security was already running towards her office when Jenny came bolting through the door, panic on her face. Oh God, oh God, oh God, was all she could manage to say. The blood was everywhere, but the contents of the box were hard to identify at first. It took police several hours to confirm that the object inside, wrapped in bright pink tissue paper, was in fact, a human foot.
A dozen men took their places in the dimly lit interrogation room. They huddled together and kept their distance from the suspect, a lone figure, calmly sitting in a chair, legs crossed, cigarette in hand. One of them pointed to the no smoking sign, and the suspect laughed. What are you gonna do, arrest me for smoking? No response for a moment. Then the men let loose a barrage of questions. Did you ever engage in any sadomasochistic activity? Did you ever tie him up? Did you use drugs together? Did you kill him? The suspect held a thousand yard stare, zero emotion, just a long, slow drag on the cigarette. And then came the response, a line practiced hundreds of times. No, I didn't kill him. Cut. 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 The film crew word to life. Not inside a police station, on a Hollywood soundstage set up to look like an interrogation room. The detectives firing away with the questions were actors. A-list stars such as Michael Douglas and veteran character actors like Chelsea Rice. Newcomers like Wayne Knight, just months away from his signature role as Jerry Seinfeld's nemesis, Newman. And after a brief discussion with director Paul Verhoeven, the men all shuffled off the soundstage their part of the scene completed. A makeup girl sprang towards Sharon Stone, the one sitting in the hot seat with the half-smoked butt in her hand, and applied a few quick touch-ups to her lipstick. A dozen crew members repositioned their cameras and boom mics as they prepared for the next shot, a close-up. The scene was crucial to the movie. And if they didn't want this film descending into unintentional farce, it was critical for Sharon to project a character that was not only sexy and inviting, but cold and calculating as well. She needed to appear in control with an edge of menacing rage boiling just below the surface. It was a challenging ask for any actor, but for Sharon Stone, the pressure was even greater. She was a relative unknown acting opposite a megastar. Michael Douglas knew this film was risky. He wanted an established star to help carry the load at the box office. He even refused to screen test with Sharon until more than a dozen other actresses turned the role down. So when she finally got the part, Sharon was determined to do whatever it took to nail it. She developed her character by digging into painful old memories. Her abusive grandfather, her beloved older brother, arrested for drug trafficking. She rehearsed her lines obsessively, so deeply into character that it would take her hours after shooting to start to feel like herself again. Now, Michael Douglas was heading back to his dressing room. While Sharon sat alone in a room with a dozen male crew members, a makeup girl, and a female script assistant. The men had already filmed their reaction shots, and now it was her job to conjure up the type of alluring ice queen that would reduce a room of police officers to sweaty horn dogs. Her lipstick was perfect. The cameras were in place. Sharon took a deep breath and looked toward the director for his cue. The director wasn't quite ready for the shot. He whispered back and forth with his AD. Sharon liked the director when she worked with him on the Arnold Schwarzenegger sci-fi flick, Total Recall. From the start, he had pushed her for this role of Catherine Trammell, even screen testing with her when Michael Douglas refused. He demanded a lot from his actors, but he got results, so Sharon trusted his instinct, no pun intended. The director, Verhoeven, finished his whispered conversation and turned toward Sharon. 
Sharon, everything's looking great, he said. But we need you to take off your underwear. They're reflecting the light and messing up the shot. The room fell silent as a dozen pairs of eyes bore down on her. Sharon felt a knot form in her stomach. Take off her underwear? In front of everyone? She hated being put on the spot like this, but what could she do? Tell Paul Verhoeven, the director, to just fuck off? Slap him across the face, shut down production, and earn herself a reputation as difficult to work with? No. She'd worked too hard for this opportunity. She was too fully immersed in the part to back down now. Inside, she was screaming, but on the outside, she stood up, calmly slipped off the white cotton underwear, and handed them to the makeup girl. As she sat back down, she saw all those eyes staring straight up her dress. Rage boiled just below the surface. She could fucking stab someone right now. But instead, she channeled that emotion into her character. And in the process, she created a legendary film villain. When Basic Instinct was released in 1992, some critics hailed it as an erotic neo-noir masterpiece, while others savaged it as ridiculously over the top. The film earned Sharon Stone two nominations, a combined first, a Golden Globe for Best Actress and a Golden Raspberry for Worst New Actress. Fuck the critics. Audiences loved it. The movie debuted at number one at the box office and catapulted Sharon to the upper echelon of Hollywood. Meanwhile, Basic Instinct was continuing to carve out a niche in the booming home video market, powered in part by teenage boys across the country who could time the pause button down to the frame for that split-second shot of Sharon's vagina. Boys like Eric Clinton Kirk Newman, alone in his bedroom on a cold winter evening in rural Ontario, obsessively watching Basic Instinct over and over again. Born to two film buff parents who named him after Clint Eastwood and Kirk Douglas, he loved movies, but this was his favorite by far. He stroked the white fur of his pet rabbit as he watched the interrogation scene again and he hit pause and rewound the tape when his door suddenly burst open. His mother flew into the room. She had that wild look in her eye, the one she'd had ever since his dad started hearing voices and was committed to an institution. Are you watching that damn movie again? He knew better than to answer her. I told you to clean this rabbit cage, it's filthy. She grabbed her son's blonde hair and began to drag him out of the house. He pleaded with her to stop, but he knew it wouldn't do any good. She pushed him out into the front porch and slammed the door shut. Now, a moment later, she returned with the rabbit cage and tossed it out onto the porch next to him. She stepped back inside and he heard the door lock behind her. Mom, please, it's freezing out here. Eric pleaded, but there was no response. The sun was going down and he knew from experience how cold it would be if she forced him to spend the night outside. He banged on the front door and no answer. He curled up into a ball on the porch and closed his eyes, recreating the interrogation scene from memory. Unlike other teenage boys, he wasn't interested in ogling Sharon Stone. He didn't want to fuck Catherine Trammell. He wanted to be Catherine Trammell. He wanted that power, that control. He craved it like a drug, and he would do anything to get a hit. 
Eric woke up the next morning and shook his stiff arms and legs to get them moving. The sun was shining down now, thawing out his frozen limbs. And he looked over to his rabbit's cage. The animal was slumped over on its side, cold to the touch. It didn't move. Eric did move. Within a year, he moved right out of his mom's house. And he spent a few years wandering aimlessly from job to job or running low-level scams. He got into trouble with the cops for stealing money from a mentally disabled woman. And he was accused of sexual assault as well, but they couldn't make those charges stick. Citing significant psychiatric issues, the judge gave him probation for charges of fraud. And afterward, Eric decided he needed a change, a fresh start. So he legally changed his name. He called himself Luca Rocco Manota. The world didn't know him, but soon they would. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. It was the darkest part of the night, just past 3 a.m. Aside from a coyote howling out in the hills, this ritzy West Hollywood neighborhood was dead silent. The man was equally silent, creeping up slowly toward a driveway, his face covered by a hood. He followed the shadows so that the moonlight wouldn't give him away. He held a letter tight to his chest. He was on a mission to deliver it, by hand this time. He'd written so many letters during his frantic cross-country drive from Ohio to Los Angeles, and all of them had gone unanswered. But this one would not be ignored. He loved her. She was the answer to his prayers. The woman who would quiet the voices in his head. The one who would sit beside him as they ruled their future kingdom. If he could just get her to answer him. That's why the man was sneaking up to Sharon Stone's mailbox in the dead of night and there would be no way to ignore him now. He fantasized about it as he came closer to her mailbox. The look on her face when she opened the letter and read his message. The fear, the shock, the realization that nothing could keep him away from her. Not her bodyguards, not the police, not even the FBI. He crouched behind a tree and took one final glance in both directions. Nothing on the street except a few parked cars. He looked up at the house's floor-to-ceiling windows. Every light was out. He stepped out of the shadows with the letter in one hand. Although his heart was hammering in his chest, he tried to walk slowly, casually, just in case anyone was looking. He opened the mailbox door and slid the letter inside, disappeared back into the shadows. He quickly made his way to the pickup truck he parked nearby and sped off. As he drove, he breathed a sigh of relief. He actually did it. He pulled it off. Now all he had to do is wait. Only seconds later, one of the cars parked on the street roared to life. Its engine gargled and its headlights sliced into the darkness. Kristen Marshall put it in first, pulled up to the mailbox and grabbed the lone letter sitting there. Then she punched the gas and made a beeline for the pickup truck ahead. She drove with one hand on the steering wheel, and with the other hand, she reached for the Glock 22 in her shoulder holster and flicked the safety off. As Sharon Stone's head of security, Kristen Marshall had been tracking this asshole for weeks. She wasn't about to let him escape now. 
Despite what the FBI said, he was a threat. The local cops claimed the whole thing was out of their jurisdiction. Sharon had no choice but to turn to private security. Kristen Marshall, find this man. Now, Kristen Marshall had him dead to rights. There was no way this dude was shaking her off. She turned hard onto the main road and caught a glimpse of the pickup just ahead. She eased her foot off the gas and stayed a half a block behind as the truck cruised out of town. And this went on for a few miles before the driver turned off and made his way to a nearby campground. Kristen tailed him and watched him pull into a campsite. She stopped her car on the side of the road and she stepped outside, unholstered her pistol and held it in her jacket pocket as she walked softly toward him, as softly as he had crept through Sharon Stone's neighborhood. The man was just about to unzip his tent when Kristen walked up behind him. Down on his knees with his hands in front of him, he was a sitting duck. Kristen put a boot straight into his back, and the man sprawled forward and landed on his stomach, and she cocked the pistol and trained it on his head. Turn around. The man rolled over and put his hands above his head. Empty your pockets, now. And he did as he was told. Turned his pockets inside out, threw his wallet at her. She looked at the Ohio license inside. The name read Philip Barnes. Also in his pocket was a handwritten grocery list. Kristen held it up next to the letter from the mailbox. The handwriting matched perfectly. With one hand, she held her Glock to his temple. And with her other hand, she pulled out her phone and dialed 911. Ever since Basic Instinct, people were obsessed with Sharon Stone. Crowds chased her after movie premieres. Stalkers showed up at the house or at her film shoots with scary frequency. No matter how hard she tried to move on from that film, tried to play against type, like her role as a gunslinging outlaw in The Quick and the Dead, she even co-produced that one movie casting Russell Crowe in his first American role and paying a young Leonardo DiCaprio's salary out of her own pocket, but still, every article written about her seemed to include the phrase sex symbol in the first two sentences. The pressure was too much. Her marriage crumbled. She briefly lost custody of her son. And then in 2001, she suffered a near fatal stroke. It took more than two years before she could return to acting. And by then, Hollywood had already moved on. She was depressed at first, but Sharon threw herself into volunteer work and fundraising. She took up Buddhism. And now, it was 2012. 20 years after Basic Instinct came out, and Sharon Stone was finally finding ways to move beyond the character of Catherine Trammell. The rest of the world, however, found it harder to move on, as evidenced by the man that Kristen Marshall, Sharon Stone's head of security, now held on the ground as she waited for police to arrive. A crisis had been averted. Another crazed fan had been stopped before he could cause harm. But meanwhile, Across the country, another plot was being hatched. Another unhinged tribute to Catherine Trammell. One that wouldn't be stopped so easily. Luca Minata flipped on the television in his drab Montreal apartment. After failing in his quest for fame, he spent the last year battling the voices in his head and mostly losing. The voices were loud, and they were clear. He tried to drown them out with the radio, 
looked like there were jackhammers outside his window or someone snoring next to him in bed, but they couldn't be drowned out. The more he cranked the dial, the more the voices cut through. They spoke of horrible things. He took the lies of two kittens and posted the video online. And then he taunted the cat lovers who tried to find him and expose him. Cat people, they should know better, he thought. Luca Minano would not be found or exposed unless Luca Minano wanted to be. He put a copy of Basic Instinct into his DVD player and watched the infamous opening murder scene, where Sharon Stone's character stabs her lover with an ice pick. He absorbed every detail and then began trying to recreate the set in his small two-room apartment. Rather than the elegant stained glass window used in the film, he hung a poster of the movie Casablanca above his bed. Rather than the ornate wrought iron headboard, he bought a cheap prefabricated imitation. He didn't have an ice pick either, but a long screwdriver painted silver made for a convincing replica. Luca looked around the room once more. It wasn't as grand as he imagined, but time was running short and it would have to do. His phone buzzed. A grinder notification flashed on the screen. It was time to meet. Luca left the apartment and headed toward a bar down the street. He was meeting an international university student studying in Montreal, someone new to the area, someone who wouldn't be missed right away. At least, that's what Luca hoped. According to this guy's profile, he was looking for casual hookups and he was into bondage. In short, he was perfect. The pair shared a drink at the bar and Luca turned on his charm. He flashed his trademark pout. He flirted shamelessly. Half an hour later, a security camera caught a glimpse of them walking into Luca's apartment building, arm in arm. The man's name was June Lin, and it was the last image anyone would ever see of him alive. Luca Minata pulled the straps on his backpack tight and walked through the front door of the internet cafe. He wore a hat low over his face and sunglasses covered his eyes. It was a gorgeous early June day in Berlin, but he had no time to admire the weather. He was the subject of an international manhunt. It took a few days, but finally the news of Jun Lin's murder broke worldwide. In Paris, they call Luca the butcher of Montreal. He loved that. Back home in Canada, the newspapers were filling whole pages with breathless accounts of the murder and of the grisly discovery at Conservative Party headquarters a few days prior. One of numerous packages containing Jun Lin's hands and feet that Luca had mailed. Despite all that, Luca was not worried. Everything in his plan had worked to perfection. The plan the voices had helped him carry out. Voices that were chatty as fuck. Voices that were louder than New Order's True Faith playing at full volume on the radio when Luca tied Jun Lin, 33 years old, naked to the bed frame, stabbed him repeatedly with the screwdriver he made to look like an ice pick, dismembered him with a kitchen knife, sliced his neck, and then removed his head from his body. Even when the New Order song ended, the voices didn't. He uploaded the video online. That got him off, having others watch having others know what he had done, 
even if they didn't know him by name. They didn't call him Luca yet. They called him a cannibal. They called him a necrophiliac. He hoped they called him smart. That he had out Catherine Trammell, Catherine Trammell. He'd certainly outsmarted the police. They failed to catch him in Montreal. They failed to catch him when he passed through customs at the airport in Paris. They failed to catch him when he was spotted eating at an outdoor cafe. And now, he had jumped the border again, this time to Berlin by bus. At the hostel nearby, he gave his name as Kirk Trammell. He thought it was clever, and the voices agreed. Here at the Internet Cafe, he signed into a computer with the name Catherine. After plugging in a pair of headphones, Luca pulled up a browser on Google and searched his name again. He scrolled through pages and pages, looking for more articles to read. Every time he found a new one, it gave him a jolt of excitement so strong he almost felt sexually aroused. And he clicked on a new article from the Canadian Broadcasting Company with a detailed timeline and a video clip of a reporter describing the crime while standing in front of Luca's old apartment building. He was swept away. He was elsewhere. He didn't notice the pair of men walking up behind him. He hit play again on the video clip just as one of the men reached out and tapped him on the shoulder. Luca Manata? It was a heavy German accent. Luca tried to run, but it was too late. They were on top of him in a second. Big hands, muscular, pulling his arms behind his back and cuffing his wrists together. They brought Luca to an interrogation room. Two investigators walked in. Luca crossed his legs and asked for a cigarette. There's no smoking in here, came the reply. What are you gonna do? Luca asked him. Arrest me for smoking. Smoking, 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 smoking. Sharon Stone tried for 20 years to move past Catherine Trammell, but people were still obsessed with the character. And how can you move past something when people are still obsessing over it? Sharon knew it all too well, but now the Canadian police were learning it too. Even after he was arrested, Luca Manata still found a way to continue his gruesome reign of terror. The day after he was taken into custody in Berlin, his final two packages arrived at separate elementary schools in Vancouver. Each contained part of June Lin's body wrapped in bright pink tissue paper. The case dragged on for over a year. Lawyers argued over Luca's sanity. In the end, the jury decided that his gruesome murder was clearly the work of a seriously deranged man, but not someone who was legally insane. Luca Manata was thus sentenced to life in prison, where he serves out a sentence for a crime so lurid, so diabolical, so gratuitously violent, that it seems like it shouldn't be from real life at all. It's a story that ought to be in pictures. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at badlandspod.com. Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcast because Badlands is available everywhere. If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone, shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double.